0: Great, well, um, it's really delightful to be here. My first visit to Trinity University um, and my second visit to San Antonio. Um, So thank you for inviting me um, and for coming to talk about the cheerful topic of death, (laughs) one of my favorite topics, um, as you'll see, but, and immortality. We can't forget the other part of this talk. Um, So there's a handout and I'll be referring back and forth to some of the selections there Um, to integrate into what I'm gonna say. Um, And I'm hoping we'll have ample time at the end for questions and um, maybe answers too, but definitely all the questions that you might want to ask me. So here we go. Uh, There's an essay published in 1929 by a great American jurist, Clarence Darrow, um, whom you made, if you've heard of him, you probably associate him with the famous Scopes Monkey Trial Um, which took place in Dayton, Tennessee. Um, That was the one immortalized and filmed by Clarence, uh, excuse me, by, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Spencer Tracy played Darrow in Inherit the Wind. Um, Maybe you haven't seen that. Watch it sometimes, an American classic. Um, In that trial, Darrow defended a substitute high school teacher, I think it was high school teacher, who uh, was teaching evolution in the 1920s, and it was illegal in the state of Tennessee to teach evolution. Um, he, Darrow, defended the teacher. Um, and it became a big publicity. In fact, it turned out later that it was kind of a publicity stunt. Um, I mean, it was a real trial, but it had been sort of orchestrated in order to give more pu- publicity um, to the topic of teaching evolution in schools. This was public schools, by the way, not private schools, public schools. Uh, I mentioned that just as background, Clarence Darrow was not a philosopher, he was a a legal practitioner and something of a legal pundit, but he did write a philosophical or semi-philosophical work titled The Myth of the Soul, um, which presents a really strong challenge to our belief in the soul, a strong intellectual challenge to our belief in the soul, our confidence that something is there after death. Uh, what Darrow asks at the beginning of his essay is whether the belief in immortality is necessary or even desirable. Um, interestingly, he doesn't ask if it's true, he asks if it's a necessary belief. Like, do we have to believe in it? Are we somehow, you know, perhaps, evolutionarily impelled to believe in it? Or is it desirable? You know, is, if we believe this, does it have good effects on our conduct? If we, if we believe that we live after death and that perhaps there's an eternal judge that will take us to account for our good or bad actions, this might have a good social effect on, on society, right? So it might be desirable. He never asks whether it's true, only whether it's necessary or desirable. Um, now, that was not because Darrow was stupid, <laughs> certainly, he's an intellectual, and um, he was a skeptic, right? So he didn't think it was possible for us mere human beings to have answers to questions like that, to attain the sort of scientific certitude about the soul. The like soul is just one of those things you talk about, some people believe in it, but nobody has scientific or real, uh, even philosophical certitude about the existence of the soul. Well, does it make a difference? Uh, does it make a difference to a human life that someone believes that he has a soul and that his soul will continue after death? Um, Darrow thinks not. <laughs> so he says that those who believe in an immortal soul seem to fear death just as much as anybody else does. Um, this is quote one, 1A one on your handout. If people really believed in a beautiful, happy, glorious land waiting to receive them when they died, if they, you know, if they really believed this, if they believed that their friends would be waiting to meet them, if they believed that all the pain and suffering would be left behind, Why should they live through weeks, months, and even years of pain and torture while a cancer, for example, eats its way to the vital parts of the body? Why should one fight off death? Because he does not believe in any real sense. Everyone knows that there is no real evidence of any such state of bliss. Kind of a dark um, and very, he thinks, realistic evaluation of how people who claim to believe in the immortality of the soul act when it's really a pertinent question, right? when they're facing their own death. Uh, the proximity of death shows up the belief that people have in the soul as really what it is, Darrow would say, wishful thinking. Now he admits that some people connect their hope in the, uh, the immortality of the soul to this other teaching called the resurrection of the body. Um, and Darrow is right to highlight that. This is quote 1B on your handout. He says, there are those who base their hope of future life upon the resurrection of the body. This is a purely religious doctrine, and he's right about that. That's not something we can know through reason that our bodies will rise. That's something we believe through faith. It is safe to say that few intelligent men who are waiting to look obvious facts in the face hold any such belief. Um, He goes on to Elijah, St. Paul, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, thankfully, he does recognize and quote that correctly, right? He's, he's right that the Orthodox Creed of the Christian church has always been that the body will rise, literally, concretely. Um, regardless of whether, as Darrow points out, that teaching has been minimized in the modern churches, So Daryl first uh, has affirmed for us the idea that we know we die, um, and we know what happens to our bodies when we die. We we see that. Um, We don't really know what happens otherwise. We don't really know what happens to the soul that we may have, because that's not something empirically evident to us. We We can't see the soul by definition, right? And the resurrection of the body is this hope for the future, again, which we don't have any any concrete evidence of. Apparently, we don't have any way to um, support our belief in it. If we, if we as Christians do believe that, uh, modern science right, teaches us that all the years in which men have walked upon the earth, all those human beings who have died before us, you know, they have eventually gone back into the earth and. Uh, our Our bodies now are made up perhaps of the particles that belong to previous bodies. You know, so Darrow goes through and points out all those um, paradoxical things that are probably true um, and that might shake our belief in the resurrection of the body and instead he he wants us to be intelligent modern scientific people um, and say finally, the soul is a myth. we know what happens when someone dies. Um, we see their body, we, we bury them, and we, we move on. That person just simply is no more. Now, Darrow, I mean, he certainly, there's something uh, a little bit sharp about his critique, and he does perhaps not have the, the most cohesive philosophical case, but he's made a, a couple of important points that I want to mention and then go on to uh, address. So one, Christians do believe in an immortal soul, which is not destroyed by death, and it lives forever, um, yet Christians, like other people, fear death, right? It is, it is a truth that Christians, although they believe that death is not the end, still fear death, and they do seek to prolong life. That also is a, a patently observable phenomenon. Now, this might represent a disconnect between belief and action, you know, maybe We would say with Darrow, they don't really believe what they're saying, or um, maybe their faith is weak. Maybe they they do believe it, but they find it difficult to act on it, or they find it difficult not to um, tremble when death approaches. Okay. Um, Now, notice none of that means that it's false. It just means that maybe we are weak and we don't always live up to our beliefs. That's possible. Um, But whatever else it indicates, it does point to this truth that it's difficult to hold on to this belief in immortality when it becomes practical, right? When it becomes a question of our own death. It's difficult. Um, And that's the second point. So the resurrection of the body is a different idea than the immortality of the soul. These are distinct. You could believe in the immortality of the soul, but not the resurrection of the body, right? Like some... um, Eastern religions have have a version of this. Um, More even the ancient philosopher Plato, he did have a kind of idea of reincarnation, but he didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, as Christians do. Um, And yet he firmly believed in the immortality of the soul. Um, So Darrow is right that this is an Orthodox Christian belief. And it's not wrong to say that Christians base their hope of a future life on the resurrection of the body even if maybe Darrow didn't quite grasp what that meant. So those two points um, will help us going forward. What I want to explore with you briefly tonight is the idea that we have an immortal soul, like the, ver- the idea itself that we have an immortal soul as held by faith, but also um, first by reason. Right? So what has philosophy in the past, even before Christianity, what has philosophy contributed to this understanding of the soul? Um, and I would argue it has given us certain reasons for holding that our souls are not destroyed by death. Uh, there's something there in the tradition we can, we can hang on to. Um, on the other hand, faith offers this teaching to us not as a sort of standalone teaching like, uh, okay, it's not one of the articles in the creed that you believe in the immortality of the soul. Rather, it's presupposed by the resurrection of the body right? Because there'd be no point to the resurrection of the body if there weren't a soul there to receive its body back, right? So we receive, in the Christian creed, we receive the immortality of the soul teaching um, embedded in as part of holding that the body will rise. It's presupposed. Um, And I'll come back to that at the end. So uh, first of all, a little bit just about philosophy. Um, In the ancient world, philosophy and, and what comes before it, in the ancient world, you, you might say, um, as Pope Benedict XVI uh, discussed in some of his writings on this topic, that all the ancient cultures believed in the soul in some way or another. They, of course, understood the soul in different ways, or they had different descriptions of it, but everyone believed in something like a soul, and none of the ancient cultures thought of death as annihilation. Right, so do you know what I mean by annihilation, being reduced to nothing? Uh, no one—it's more of a modern concept to think about the soul being annihilated. Uh, the ancient cultures—I mean, of course, had all kinds of ideas and myths, stories about what happens to the soul after death. But none of them even seem to contemplate the idea that the soul would somehow like self-destruct or that it would um, actually be reduced to nothing. In the traditional view, um, now turning to ancient Greece and the beginnings of philosophy, um, the philosophers respond to a traditional view about the soul and about death. Um, So this is um, the view that we find in the poets, basically. Homer, uh, in particular, I will point out here. So in Greek poetry, in Greek mythology, Hades, the place of the dead, is a frightening place. Now, it's the place of the dead, meaning the dead still exist, but they have a place of their own. They go somewhere else that's not our world. So in a very important way, they're separated from us, distant from us, and it's a fearful place, where, as uh, Homer says in the Odyssey, blazing Helios never looks down on them, the dead, with his rays, so they're always in darkness, but abominable night is forever spread over those unhappy mortals. It's interesting that they're mortals right they're, they're already dead but uh, they're still defined by that mortality the living are f- afraid of going to Hades you know sometimes they have to like Odysseus himself has to go down to Hades while he's still alive with his crew um, and he's instructed by a goddess about how Circe how to how to do that without um, himself dying but It's so frightening to his crew. I mean, they're just ordinary men that when he tells them they sit down and cry. Uh, And this was characteristic, right? That the place of the dead is a frightening place. So the philosophical conclusion we might draw from this, that these are poets um, and myths, but the rational conclusion might be, okay, the dead still exist in some way, but it's like not something we wanna be a part of. It's something frightening there's something terrible about their state of you know, hovering between being and non-being or uh, life and uh, whatever kind of existence they have. Then the philosophers, right? So those, those are the poets, the traditional view, the, the theological view, pagan theology. Um, the philosophers, here I'm thinking of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, especially, have a view that's more scientific An ancient philosopher, even before Socrates, Anaxagoras was told that his son had died. Now, most people have told, most fathers have told that their son had died would mourn and would have some appropriately emotional response. But Anaxagoras said, on hearing of the death of his son, "I knew that my son was immortal." In other words, you know, (laughs) of course, purely scientific, rational understanding, he was immortal. So it's not a surprise to me that he died. Every mortal has to die. The philosopher then appears as this one who um, dispels the myths of of the blind hopes that man holds about uh, ignoring his own death, perhaps hoping the immortality. Uh, At the same time, the philosopher is the one who looks beyond death and tries to discover or articulate any reason for thinking the soul will survive and perhaps some kind of Um, have some kind of good or even better existence. Socrates doesn't just affirm that the soul continues to exist. He actually, directing our attention to the soul itself, the part of man that allows him to look on eternal realities and to philosophize, um, that part of the human person is not subject to deterioration like the body. Instead, the soul must go on, must continue its existence. And in fact, Socrates is hopeful that the existence of the soul after death will be even better than the existence of the body. The body will be um, shed, you know, as a as a caterpillar sheds its chrysalis um, in order to move on to a better stage of life. At one point, Socrates does describe the body as a prison. Um, and he doesn't mean necessarily that it's a an evil in itself, but rather it's it's a state that's transitional, right? It, and we're waiting to we're waiting for the next thing. We're waiting to get out. Um, now Socrates actually lives that out in his own death. He he goes to death with this famous equanimity. Um, he's perfectly calm. He's not afraid. His friends are all sad and afraid for him, but he is at peace um, and full of hope, right? He doesn't really know what is beyond, like he doesn't know what that's gonna be like, but he is full of hope in something better. So these two poles um, for the ancients, these are the two poles, the, the poets, the traditional theology and the philosophers in reference to which the whole philosophical problem of death um, is oriented. Right, and, and that sort of sets the stage for uh, later, the Christian communication about the nature of the soul and death um, and immortality. One more ancient um, who adds one note of complexity here. So we have the so far kind of simple picture of got Homer, and death is a scary place, Hades, terrible. And we have Aristotle, excuse me, with Plato and Socrates, who affirm the goodness of the soul and its Immortal nature, it's destiny for something better after death. Okay, now we have to throw in Aristotle, who in some ways represents a sort of confrontation, um, if not quite a synthesis between these two views, the traditional view of the poets and the scientific view of the philosophers. So let me explain. Um, Aristotle understands the human being as an animal. He looks at us scientifically and sees that we are animals. We have a soul, or in other words, a life principle, which he defines as the form of a natural body having life potentially within it. Um, That's on your handout, I believe, under number three. Body and soul together form one thing, one organism, and their unity is so tight, their unity is so close that neither can exist on their own. The body without the soul is a corpse. Um, And it seems that the soul without the body would be sort of um, impotent, right? It couldn't do anything because the body is the tool, the instrument of the soul. What could it form? What could it be the form of if it didn't have a body to be the form of? So death is the disintegration of the unity that's in an organism, right? So all things that by nature are corruptible, which includes ourselves, um, for us, death, then, is natural for all corruptible things. But, but, so that's the scientific view that Aristotle presents to us when he's thinking about the human as an organism and an animal. Um, but there's more for Aristotle. The human being, um, for us, death is natural. But there's also this other element. Um, Aristotle calls it noose or mind. Um, we might say intellect. And this element in us, he says... This is quote 3B on your handout. Mind seems to be a substance that comes to be in the human animal and to be imperishable. This leaves open the possibility that the mind is something more divine and unaffected. And so imperishable, divine, unaffected. And the next quotation, um, also from his work De Anima on the Soul. It is further in its separate state that the intellect is just that which it is and it is this alone that is immortal and eternal, even though we have no memory, as the separate intellect is unaffected, while the intellect that is affected is perishable, and in any case, thinks nothing without the other. So on the one hand, we have the the more scientific analysis, which recognizes death as natural to man, as an animal. Um, On the other hand, we have this emphasis on mind being something quite different. Whatever mind is, it's not dependent on the body in the same way that the other physical powers are, like sight or walking. So there's a mysterious suggestion here, maybe just a suggestion, but a suggestion nonetheless, that our mind, nous, allows the human somehow to share in the divine and the immortal. So there's something about us, even though we 're mortals, there's something about us that's immortal, and even though we 're human, there's something about us which is divine or has a share in the divine um, I added a, another quote quote number four, um, also from Aristotle, but from his Nicomachean ethics um, to show and i won't i won't read it the quote itself, but um, this is some evidence that for Aristotle, there's still more to the story because he does admit that the, the fortunes of the dead uh, can be affected in some way, or at least he, he takes that traditional view and he doesn't deny it because he doesn't have a way of, kind of accounting for it um, or explaining it, but he's not willing to just jettison it. Um, but you know, that sort of implies that they exist, right? So if, as in the uh, story of Antigone, in ancient Greek myth. Antigone, you know, her brother had died in circumstances in which he was considered a traitor. um, And so the king refused burial to her brother. Um, But to Antigone, like the the burial of her brother was so important to her um, that she violated the king's law and, and risked her own life, right? So she essentially gave her life so that her brother could have a proper burial. Um, but why would someone do that if a dead body is just that, or if there's no, if there's no one that can be affected by um, burial or lack of burial? There's a hint there again. Um, but hints, you know, hints are are tantalizing, and we like as philosophers to uh, make a lot of them, maybe. But really, they they are just hints, and if we seriously want some um, evidence for the immortality of the soul, if we want some thinking about death that really would, would give us a true confidence, um, we're, we're a little bit at a loss here. Because um, you know on the one hand, it seems like we, we have with Aristotle a scientific advance. We, we understand what an organism is. But on the other hand, we, we're losing that confidence that Socrates had in the immortality of the soul. And Darrow might say, well, that's just the price we have to pay. You know, so once you have science, once you get scientifically advanced, that means you, you let go of the myths, right? His article was titled, The Myth of the Soul. Uh, and that's how he sees it. He sees it as a myth that all you know, primitive and early cultures hold. And then they gradually, as they become more scientific, they gradually slough off those uh, more mythical aspects. Against this somewhat disheartening conclusion that, you know, as we get more scientific, we uh, have to get rid of those deeper beliefs, we can look to St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, here we are at the Thomistic Institute, so that would be an appropriate thing to do. One of Aquinas' achievements was to synthesize Plato and Aristotle, some of their, their insights about the soul. So Aquinas is able to maintain with Plato that the soul, human soul is a spiritual and intellectual substance. It's, It's something that has existence in its own right. Uh, And at the same time, he wants to say with Aristotle that the soul really is the form of the body. The body's not simply a prison or a temporary housing, but it's really part of our person. It's who we are, um, even though the soul is first, meaning the soul is most important. So Thomas Aquinas thinks that if we arrive at the conclusion that the soul is this kind of thing, an immaterial substance, then we will also necessarily be led to the conclusion that the soul is indestructible, right? So if we really grasp what it means to be a soul, a human type of soul, then we will necessarily be led to immortality of the soul. And this whole argument, there's there's a a number of arguments and I haven't uh, put them all in the handout, I haven't, and I don't intend to, Uh, try to relate them all, because, I mean, that would be a whole class. (laughs) I'd have to to stay here all semester. Um, However, um, I, I will just highlight one thing. His whole argument, the whole argument for the existence of the soul and its immortality rests on the idea of activity, which is intellectual. Activity, which is intellectual. So, for example, math. Um, mathematical thinking is a sign of intellect, a sign of mind, not just brain. Right? The brain may be involved, of course, but the the even something like mathematics, let alone philosophy or theology, mathematical thinking is an immaterial activity. Uh, so it starts with it starts with mathematical objects, right? Like, um, you know, you probably learned how to count when you were a toddler by moving little blocks around um, or balls or beads or whatever. Uh, so we start with material objects, but pretty soon we go beyond them, right? And and we know that math, like the number three, isn't three anything, it's just three, and it's a purely abstract idea. So the fact that we can think those things means that there's a thinker, right? That is a, an intellectual nature that is, holding, so to speak, that immaterial idea, right? So if the immaterial idea of three exists, it must exist somewhere, so to speak, and that place is what we call mind or intellect. But I'm using place in in scare quotes because it's not a physical place, it's part of us, but it's not like the brain or any other particular organ or even any part of of the brain. It is rather an immaterial part of us, an immaterial power in our very being. Um, And that's the reason why we can have mathematics. That's the reason why we can have philosophy. It's the reason why we can have science. Um, Even the science that eventually undermines the mind and says there's no soul, right, is founded on the fact that we have a mind that is capable of scientific thought, which involves this abstraction. Uh, So that's a, a really brief and and loose summary, but that should give you an idea of what's at the root of this argument. So if I'm the kind of being that can think immaterial thoughts, like three and more complex ones, I must be an immaterial kind of being. I'm a a spiritual substance. I'm also a material substance because I have a body. But if I have spiritual activity, non-material activity, there must be someone there to do the acting, right? Activity requires an agent, right? And that agent must be a spiritual agent or a non-material agent to explain these non-material acts. Uh, If if you study a little modern philosophy, um, you might remember, of course, Descartes' famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Um, And that's that's kind of what he was saying too in in a very different way that I, because there's thinking, I must exist, right? This act of thinking must exist in something that thinks. There must be a thinker if there's thinking. Um, and it, it's not just thinking. When you talk about you know other things, loving, um, forgiving, promising, dedicating, and so forth. So this argument, um, We could go into all the properties that follow from being an immaterial thinker, uh, but we won't. Instead, uh, after offering this very sketchy version, which if you're interested in delving into more deeply, uh, you can look at the Summa Theologiae, the first part, question 75. I have a a short quote on the handout. Um, Or the Summa Caccia Gentiles, book two. Uh, Some of the chapters in the middle of that book deal with the human intellect. But, What I wanna highlight right now is that this is hard. (laughs) This is a hard argument. Um, It's a hard thing to grasp, right? Because we're trying to grasp the soul, after all, that it's non-material. And it's a hard thing to explain. Hard thing to grasp and it's a hard thing to explain. Um, So someone comes along and challenges you from a a scientific perspective and maybe throws a lot of statistics at you or um, tells you a lot of fancy things from neurology and what, what the brain can do. Um, and, then, and then suddenly, like, well, gosh, why do I believe in the, in the immortality of the soul? Or why do I think there is a soul? Can I really demonstrate this? Can I prove that there is a soul? Um, I mean, Aquinas thinks you can, you can, but it, it's not easy <laughs> to do, and you have to understand uh, rather a lot of, of metaphysics to do so. And this brings me to, in fact, the resurrection um, so the the last point I want to make here, and then um, after I close with this final section um, we can have the Q and a when Saint Paul preached to the people in Athens you know, with his famous sermon in the Areopagus, um, he didn't preach to them about the soul um, he he probably presumed they already believed in a soul because nobody doubted that that part of what he was bringing. But he did need to proclaim that death is not the end, uh, that it's not that the soul is going to be just shuffled into some Hades, some non-existing existence, and then never heard from again. Instead, of course, what he preached was the resurrection of the body, right? The soul is a given, um, but the new teaching, the, the radically new thing that the Christian teaching brought to this conversation was that the soul, which continues to exist, will receive its body back. That's what we call the resurrection of the body. And we know that the Athenians uh, laughed at him for it, right? They said, well, we'll hear you about this at another time. Now, although, as I mentioned, these two things could be understood separately, and they are separate, the indestructibility of the soul and the resurrection of the body. Those are distinct teachings. Nonetheless, there is a deep connection. Um, and I think this is a connection that's helpful for us to recognize um, and reflect on. We don't have empirical evidence for the soul, not direct empirical evidence. We have empirical evidence like in the fact of mathematics and science, and we say, well, there must be a cause of those activities. But we, what we lack is like something concrete, something empirical. Um, now you're probably thinking, if you're following me, that, well, duh, I mean, of course you can't have empirical evidence of the soul. It's not an empirical substance, right? It's not, it's not a physical substance. So by definition, you can't touch it, you can't see it. And yet, you know, as humans, we like empirical evidence, right? And, and we do tend to trust something and adhere to a teaching when we can have something. Uh, material to hang on to when we are affirmed by some sort of empirical evidence. Um, is it is it possible? You know, what sort of empirical evidence of the continued existence of the soul could there be? Well, and we might think, well, there are such things as stories of people who see ghosts. Right? There's plenty of um, data out there about uh, people who have who believe they have had contact with a deceased loved one or seen a a ghost or a spirit and so forth. Um, Now, of course, those are are notoriously um, debated. Even if we did, however, accept the truth of some of those accounts, probably not all of them, but even if some of them are true and it's difficult to rule out psychological causes there, um, they tend to be rather ephemeral, right? By nature, a ghost is a kind of ephemeral being. And we're scared of, apparently. I mean, why are ghosts scary things? Have you thought about that? Like, who could, who would be less likely to hurt you than someone who was dead? And notoriously difficult to subject to sustained analysis, right? They won't won't go under the microscope (laughs) to let us investigate. But what if, instead of, like, some somewhat sketchy ghost story, what if someone I actually knew came back to life? to actual bodily life, like not, not a ghost, not an apparition. But what if someone I knew really died and then came back? Now, I think that would be pretty persuasive. Um, on the other hand, presumably that person would die again. And then I'd sort of be back to square one. Because, okay, I mean, I believed that, that your soul continued to exist because you came back. But now you're gonna die again, I I won't really know what happens. And most likely, I would conclude that that person probably wasn't actually dead and just, you know, it was a mistake, mistaken diagnosis, and um, that sort of thing does happen, I suppose. But what if someone were to come back from death, a death of such a kind that there could be absolutely no doubt that the person had really died, right? So there's no question there. And what if he came back in such a way that he was, in clearly what must be the same body, but in such a way that he wouldn't die again, and that it would be known that he wouldn't die again. right? So there you'd have a different kind of confirmation because you have a clear evidence right, that the soul had to continue to exist right? because if the person was dead, um, clearly dead, and then now is alive, that body has received the soul back and it's the same person. Uh, Well, then clearly the soul continued to exist, right? And was somewhere else or in some other state and now is back. Um, And again, death was clear. I think that would be pretty convincing too if you were there to see it, right? If you were there to actually witness and you knew that this person had really died, was buried, and then came back as the same person and was never going to die again. Now, of course, that actually is exactly what Christians believe happened to Jesus, right? That he died in such a way, crucifixion, that nobody could doubt that, that, was, that was, he was dead. Um, he was laid in the tomb, right? So everyone knew where his body was put and the tomb was closed, there, there could be no doubt. Um, and then the tomb was empty, right? So the body's not there anymore. Then the body, uh, reanimated by his soul, Appears to people that he knew, people he talked with. And of course, you know the stories, he did they didn't recognize him. There was something different about him, but then as soon as they realized who it was, they knew him, right? So for, through various um, means they came to know. So if you want to think about it this way, you could consider the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead as the the best kind of empirical evidence we could have for the immort- immortality of the soul. Um, now, maybe you would say that only uh, that only helps if you were one of those lucky ones to be there and actually witness him, see him, touch him. Um, and that's true, right? It was empirical for the apostles because they touched him. They saw him. They ate with him after he rose from the dead uh, for for. 50 days. But even the apostles, you know, needed faith, right? It wasn't that that empirical evidence took the place of faith. Rather, they received that empirical evidence, if you like, um, in order to be able to pass it on um, and to pass on the faith along with these signs that they had witnessed. So this, this faith in the resurrection of Jesus which is faith in an empirical fact, right? Faith that something actually physically, historically happened, right? That we believe now on the basis of the witnesses, starting with the apostles, but through an unbroken tradition, those testimonies that have been passed down to us. Um, We believe in the resurrection because of their witness passed down to us. Um, and, And of course it requires faith. That faith in the resurrection of Jesus, though, brings along with it a great confidence in the immortality of the soul. That if we were inclined to doubt what happens to the soul after death, the belief in the resurrection of the body confirms with an absolute seal that the soul must continue to exist. Um, it gives, as it will, the, if you will, the, the confirmation, the seal to that. Uh, that teaching which could be accessible to philosophy but is uh, difficult to maintain without some sort of confirmation, some sort of empirical evidence. So in, in my conclusion here, I would say Darrow is partly right. It's true that hope in the resurrection of the body is closely tied to belief in the soul's immortality. It's not, though, that Christians believe only because of the resurrection of the body. That belief is not the cause of their belief in the immortality of the soul, but it does confirm it. It does seal it um, and give us a great confidence, right? a confidence that even extends to our, our senses, at least to the senses of the apostles, and since we share their faith, also to our senses. Um, and Dara was also correct in noting that Christians, like other people, fear death and try to avoid it. Um, Darrow doesn't seem to be aware of, or at least he doesn't mention, the fact that there's a whole Christian tradition of meditating on death and mento mori, um, which I think is receiving a renewal in popularity in more contemporary and younger people like you, um, which is, to me, really encouraging to see that once again... We're, we're becoming aware of the importance of thinking about death to our spiritual life, uh, th- death to life, right? That thinking about our death, not as a morbid or depressing thing, um, or simply an object of fear, but rather as something to help us live um, more fully, right? Live, and not just, well, life is short, so I wanna live a really you know interesting and good life. Yes, but more importantly, that it concentrates our attention on Christ, who confirms our hope in the resurrection of our bodies and our belief or knowledge, even of our immortal souls. Maybe one of the reasons why, in our culture, even among Christians, belief in the immortality of the soul or just the soul itself is weaker is that our belief in the resurrection is weaker, right? That a lot of uh, Christians have kind uh, of tone down and stop talking about the resurrection of the body as a literal truth. Uh, maybe if we were to reawaken and strengthen that truth, it would help us all the more to defend the existence of the soul, to understand uh, the, the absolute surety that we have about, about our soul's existence after death uh, in hope of resurrection of the body. And I'll end with um, a quotation from the Office of Readings for today from St. Ambrose, Uh, of Hippo, who was writing about the resurrection. um, And he said at the end that when we receive our bodies back in in incorruption, we, Christians, uh, will then finally, truly know that we are redeemed.